this report. Hope everybody is doing well. Uh, we are also broadcast. So we're broadcasting on innerlightradio.com. We are also on YouTube. Go to Dr. T. Hassan Johnson. You'll find the channel. Please subscribe, share, like the video. Uh, you'll be able to, to watch there as well as on Facebook through my Facebook page. Again, you can look for T. Hassan Johnson. So um, good to be back. Hope everybody is doing as well as possible in the midst of all that we have going on. Y'all already know it's crazy. This last week, the news has been outrageous um, in terms of how much has been going on, and uh, it, it's it's even hard to keep up. So, um, But as people are coming in, I want to shout out a few people who are already in the chat on Facebook and YouTube. Um, so I want to give people some due. Uh, shout out to Unreasonable, Unreasonable Man. Appreciate that support. Um, please go ahead and support the show. You can do that on Cash App. You can do that on Venmo. You can do that on PayPal. Or you can, of course, super uh, do a super chat on YouTube. Um, so Soul Shader, what's going on? Nameless protagonist, Adrian, what's happening? Uh, so I'm seeing some of the faces in the building. Moada, what's going on, man? All right. Art New Style, what's happening? All right. Joe Average Brother. So we got some people in. What's going on, man? Good to see you, NJ Progressive. Right. So we in the building and we're getting it in. And today we are talking about the latest form of anti-black misandry um, as, as well as the rise of the black woman buffer class. We're going to talk a little bit about the mechanics of that. Uh, but y'all know how I do. Um, I like to actually go through some uh, current events just to get us up to speed. Mr. T8, what's happening? Torrance, Marvin, um, Cornhead, appreciate that support. Um, so come on in, people. Uh, get this going. Malika, what's happening? All right. So I'd like to start us off. Let's go ahead and jump into now. Today, I'm going to start with you know a bit of a warning suggestion for black men. Um, in light of some of the current events, you guys already know uh, that it is best if we start with some kind of acknowledgement that uh, in light of, you know, later we'll, we'll talk about a little bit with um, Chadwick Bozeman, you know, please make sure that you get out and get your colon and prostate exams. We will go over some of the statistics uh, regarding black men and cancer. So y'all already know. Malik, appreciate the cash app. Y'all already know how important it is. If you don't, by the time you hit age 30, no later than 35, you need to be out getting checked uh, by a doctor, at least in terms of your colon and prostate. So please make sure you look out for that because uh, you never know when knowing a bit earlier can make all the difference. So uh, at least look into that. Don't take it lightly. All right. So we're going to bounce a little bit through what's going on in the news uh, tonight. We're going to stretch our legs a little. This will be longer than an hour. I have some things that I really want to get into. 106, 107 in the building online. Uh, so please make sure you like, share, and subscribe. Uh, Megan Mon uh, Mega Montana, appreciate the support. All right. Um, okay. All right. So as we get into it, uh, the first thing I wanted to put up, this one just made me laugh a little bit, and I thought we'd start with a little bit of light humor, considering how much uh, dense kind of stuff we got to go through tonight. And we do have quite a bit to go through, so bear with me. But the first one up, some of you may have seen me post 
on my uh, social media page. And this was this was about an Oklahoma City police report uh, that came out about a, a, a fairly young brother. They have pictures of him on camera. And basically what he did was he knocked over a liquor store. But he did this in a way I've never heard of that had me crying. I mean, he he basically walked in with a T-shirt of the store with the store logo on it. He pretended to be the next shift. He actually sent the cashier home, took over, rung a few people in. He did a few transactions and then stole everything in the register and left. And I was like, you know what? I mean, this is clearly the desperation and intensity of COVID and the economy that's come with it. But I, I had to say it was hilarious. I, I've never heard that before. Uh, Black Uber Strikes, appreciate that support. So I, I, I just had to, <laughs> I had to acknowledge that because that's probably the most creative robbery I've ever seen. <laughs> Rodney, appreciate the support. I mean, that's that's a level of planning. I don't know what you do with that. You got to have a certain level of charisma to send an employee home that you ain't never met before to <laughs> convince them that you actually work there. So uh, shout out to the brother for his creativity. And <laughs> I don't know what to say. Um, anyway, um, next up, got a report. This is out the NWI Times that a shooter paused to allow woman kids to pass before killing man in a gas station. Right. This is out in Crown Point. And apparently, um, you know, the man arrested Wednesday on a murder charge was talking to a 22 year old when his accomplice pulled a gun, paused to allow three kids and a woman to pass and then shot the 22 year old black man uh, to death. May 31st inside a Gary gas station. Court records allege this is um, Terry L. Uh, Horton, 23, appeared Friday before a late criminal court magistrate who entered a not guilty plea on his behalf. Uh, Darrell Townsend, 22 of Gary, was killed in the shooting May 31st. Now, the only reason I, I, I highlight this is I've talked before at length about what I call the black male dual economy, right? And basically, uh, we're going to be talking about that in various ways tonight, even if I don't use the term. But I want to put that in your mind as we go through today, because much of what we're talking about is the, the, the lived economy that's a little different for us as black men. So in this instance, uh, I'm I'm not you know trust me I'm not upset I'm not mad that these that a woman and her children were weren't killed I'm just saying that it, in that kind of instance where we see that happening that's actually a reflection of the degree of difference in how we're treated even when it's from one another uh, Rain Lab Chemistry appreciate that support from both of you thank you um, so and Rodney thanks for the support right this is the kind of difference we see and experience in society. Uh, Professor Conroe, good to see you. All right. Um, so in that regard, you know, to see women and children getting a pass, definitely a good thing. I'm not complaining about that. Just acknowledging, right, the life differences, the quality of life differences. Now, this is probably the result of some tension that's gone on before, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Right. We've seen these kind of instant, instant instances uh, be fairly spontaneous where black men are uh, even with white police officers or random vigilantes sought out and killed. Right. So in that kind of way, being a black man in and of itself um, comes with a certain tax. Right. And this was kind of representative of a low level of that. What's up, BGS in the building? Big discussions. Appreciate that support. Um, check out Big Discussion 76 Science and Technology. Definitely go to his channel. Uh, he's got some crucial information there, especially in regard to the virus that I think people need to know. So uh, please support that, brother. Um, right. 
So, all right. So moving up to what's next. Um, uh oh, hold on. Didn't mean to skip this. Uh, for those of you that don't know, um, we have a report as to one former Georgetown coach, John Thompson, dies at 78. Right. Uh, Thompson was known as a coach that made uh, young men into men. Um, but uh, the cause of death, as I know, to this point has not been established. If it has been, please make sure you share. Uh, but nevertheless, just wanted to shout this brother out. Um, there's a few brothers I want to shout out today as we go along. Uh, Cedric, appreciate that support on PayPal. Right. So just to kind of give you some heads up about some things that are going on. Shout out to John Thompson. Put in years in his craft actually help people along the way and you can't do much more than that uh as you uh, go through this life but nonetheless uh he will be missed all right here we got a report on uh racism denied in auburn uh, auburn's first black student a master's degree then at 86 he returned uh donnell appreciate that support on the paypal uh, racism denied Auburn's first black student a master's degree, and then at 86, he returned. Harold A. Franklin, first African-American student, admitted to Auburn University. He would actually, he talks about this in the article. This is on the Washington Post website. If you've not seen it, it's actually incredibly interesting. But he talks about the way that his thesis work was treated. And there are many, you know, black graduate students that I've run into that are still going through degrees of this, right? He basically would say, he said, I'm quoting him, each time I would carry my thesis to be proofread, um, art, appreciate the support. Um, I'd carry my uh, thesis to be proofread, they'd find an excuse. Sometimes I didn't dot an I. One of the professors told me yours has to be perfect because you're black and your people would be reading yours. I told him I had been to the thesis room and read theses by white kids. Theirs were not perfect. I couldn't understand why they couldn't accept mine. He kept receiving this treatment over and over again until he quit, went somewhere else and got a master's degree elsewhere, but uh, basically came back and to be acknowledged years later. Uh, Charles, appreciate that support. Right, this is the kind of thing that black graduates still go through to this day. And I know that I wanted to preempt this when I was at Claremont doing my doctorate. Uh, so one of the things I did was I basically, I had a, an all Africana studies committee, which is code for an all black committee. Uh, suffice it to say my department didn't like that much. So they literally stuck a white woman on my, my degree committee, like a couple of days before my dissertation defense. So she literally showed up to my defense and just sat there, but that was their way of letting me know that that was the only way I was going to be approved. Man Friday, appreciate that support. I was the only way I was going to be approved, but I had a committee um, that I wanted to, that I wanted to be able to trust and don't get it twisted. You know, black faculty don't take it easy on, easy on you. In fact, they can actually go harder because they know what you're going to be up against. So it wasn't that I had an easier road, but I knew if my committee said I wasn't ready, I knew I wasn't ready. If they told me I was, I knew I was those people I trusted. So I was the first to kind of do that. And I've since heard that they changed the policy because of me. Some of the recent students tell me that they had to change how the how you put together your whole committee because of what I did. And I don't really care. But I mean, it, it is what it is. And these are the kind of things we got to grapple against. Um, OK, so uh, Ibo Sosa, appreciate the support. All right. Uh, so next up. This is an interesting one uh, for America's black mothers. The fear of loss and trauma is constant. This is actually on the National Geographic website. And it's basically an article dealing with the photographer's work. As a matter of fact, um, I think what I'll do, hold on, let me, 
I think we can actually, we'll glance very quickly. I don't know. I don't know um, what the issues are here doing this, but I think it's important. Um, so you can, you can see kind of what's going on. This is basically a photographer whose work is dealing with this concept of strange fruit, which if you listen to, you know, some of the blues artists uh, going back, like I think it was Billie Holiday and then more recently Nina Simone sang a song called Strange Fruit. And it really had to do with black men hanging off trees in the South. Well, this particular photographer decided that he wanted to kind of showcase the impact on mothers and children uh, by doing a series of shots about dead black men. Um, now, or boys too, for that matter, right? I'm not gonna show it too long. I'm not sure, again, what the legalities are around that, but all I can say is one of the things that bothers me about these kinds of things is that it is really difficult in 2020 for black men to be the voices of their own victimization, right? And although I'm not decrying the brother's work, I appreciate his artistry and the skill that goes into it. And I don't deny black women, black children, a voice about the death of black males in their community. I just find that when you put this, when you stack this against all the other images and, and articles out there about black men, you very rarely hear, hear black men opine on their own condition. Right. So what I, I kind of felt this piece did, along with a lot of others, Orange Juice Jones, appreciate the support. A lot of what they do is recenter the narrative. Right. So whether you're talking politically about groups like Black Lives Matter or whether you're talking, you know, artistically like pieces like this, it recenters the narrative on other people. And there's an actual there's a political equity that gets used for other groups. But black men themselves can't seem to use their own situation to advance their own interests. A little bit later, we're going to be talking about the black male political agenda. And one of the things I want us to get used to doing is not only using the talking points that we develop for our own agenda, but actually pressing against work that recenters our deaths in other people's interests. And I'm not saying that, you know, uh, you know, in regard to this piece, that black women and children don't have a voice about our deaths. I don't. I think it's important that that be articulated at some point, but not at the expense of black males actually being able to articulate their own victimization. And that's something that I see happening more and more in regard to our experiences. Billy, appreciate the support on the cash out, right? So these are the kind of things that I kind of think require our attention a little bit because they kind of go under the radar and we, we just accept that this is this should be happening. So um, uh, Joe from DC, appreciate the support. So just as you can see, in the image that I had up a moment ago, I'm gonna put back up now. We still got a lot to go through. Um, you know, the, the question is how this impacts others, but very few have actually asked a very basic question. How does this impact, impact black men, right? Even when we look at what's going on in terms of this presidential race, I've only heard black, men's, black men as a, as, a, as a group brought up once very recently, and I'll show you that in a second, but it's symbolic. It's not real, it's not substantive. Because as I covered in my last show, um, other communities even consider the voice of the black community to be black women's, not black men's. So our deaths are symbolic. They're cannon fodder. There's something for politicians to use. But even when the black agenda is articulated around issues somewhat tied to black men, it's not really in black men's interest. It tends to be in um, the interests of pretty much every other demographic but us. Aquatechi, appreciate that support on the cash out. 
right? So just to kind of put that out there, it, it's it's appalling, it's striking. Uh, the camera work, the images will definitely hit you. But at the end of the day, uh, we still have to ask the question, when do black male deaths actually get to be uh, reflected upon by black men themselves? And how does, and whether or not our own deaths, can we actually be able to use that to actually develop policy that may prevent it? as opposed to develop policy for everybody else, all right? So this one is an interesting one. Um, innocent dad raped and battered to death by vigilante parents after girl 10 lied that he abused her for a joke. This is out of newsbreak.com and basically covers um, uh, a girl claimed that a truck driver, Dmitry Chikarkin, Chivarkin, I'm not going to get that right. He's Russian, I believe, had touched her and a friend below the waist as he was dropping them off to a, um, a carer in town uh, in Russia. Right. And so basically the parents responded and he was raped and battered to death. Nameless protagonist. Appreciate that support. Um, let me see. He says, images say more than words. The classic family unit of mother and child continues to move in the idea of no father being present, but leaving our deaths still going back to the mother gynocracy somehow. Absolutely. The problem with the uh, post that I did, the, the piece I just had up from National Geographic is also that it removes fathers. Absolutely. Appreciate you pointing that out. Um, I'm trying to cover so much that it's easy to forget about some of the more subtle points. 296 people watching. Please make sure you like, share, and subscribe um, as we continue. Right? Uh, so we're getting it up there. Truth, appreciate the support. Right? So back to this piece here. The reason I add this, the reason I posted this, because I mean, why why am I posting on a Russian, you know, Russian guy and you know, on a show on black men? Well, obviously, when you're talking about uh, this notion of be hashtag believe her. Right. This idea that women and girls are inherently telling the truth and must be heard. What that's done in the last few years is it's given really a, a large demographic. Right. A lot of power to end people's careers, to destroy reputations. And in some instances, lose, you know, have them lose their lives over the word of a random person. And, and some of the incidents we've been seeing in the last few years, they don't even have to come forward publicly. And I'm talking adults. I mean, this is a 10 year old child, so I understand why they didn't put her face out there. But even when it comes to adult accusers, you know, you might have accusers from 20, 30 years ago, they don't have to come forward. They don't have to file anything. They don't have to provide any evidence. And that's a lot of power to give a society full of people who may have, you don't know how many different kinds of psychological issues. And yet, these people have your life in their hands in some instances. So um, I didn't go looking for this. It, you know, it just kind of popped up uh, and I thought it important to mention. I don't think we have to go as far as Russia to find incidents like this. As a matter of fact, if you're incarcerated behind a false uh, pedophilia charge, men in prison will kill you. Right. And you still may lose your life. And if you're innocent of that, that's especially damaging. Right. Um, particularly if there's no evidence presented. So these kind of things we got to be mindful of, like Lean Bentley, appreciate the support. So just to kind of put that out there, the danger of hashtag believe her. Now, I mentioned a moment ago that black men are not uh, kind of dealt with in terms of uh, the political, you know, uh, kind of set of issues out for the day. Uh, but don't worry about it because Biden and Harris are coming to a town near you where, as it said here, they are campaigning and outreaching to black men, right? Two people that have been instrumental in creating policy uh, that has uh, further incarcerated black men. 
Uh, they know it's a bad look. Rashad, appreciate the uh, cash app. It's a bad look for them to um, to be out here uh, not saying anything about black men. But again, because they haven't asked anything critical to this point, it's really a symbolic gesture in my humble opinion. But nonetheless, their first stop is in Wisconsin and their strategy says that they include a series of conversations they call shop talk meant to simulate uh, the raw conversations had in the black barbershops. The events could be an opportunity to increase turnout. Only 54% of eligible black men voted in 2016 compared to 64% of eligible white men, according to Pew Research. Uh, so, you know, again, they had to kind of do this symbolically because uh, despite it all, despite how much political capital uh, many of these black female led organizations have been able to garner at the expense of black male deaths, it still looks bad to not have black men present. Right. And since, you know, many of them know black men are not as a whole excited about either set of options politically uh, to not address black men at all looks bad. Nevertheless, um, all they really need to do, or at least what has been the going practice for some decades now, is just to provide a little bit of symbolism, a couple of photo ops, end of discussion, right? And this is why I think it's important um, that we need a political agenda. We need talking points. We need very specific issues that speak to our situation, because our situation differs even from what we might call the Black agenda, right? So we need to be very clear about what that is, because the black agenda, whenever we hear about it, 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 there are some generic issues that impact black folk. But again, the central idea that undergirds it is that because we're all black, we're all the same. We all have the same issues. And if we're going to deal with gender at all, it only applies to women and girls because black men and boys don't have a gender and therefore don't have anything worthy of adding to the list that speaks particularly particularly to them. So even with, as I said, the National Geographic piece, even when we talk about black male deaths, we need to change the conversation to talk about how it makes women and girls feel that they've been killed. Well, there might be a little more to that discussion, but in order to have it, black men have to risk being called sexist or misogynist for actually pushing their own interests. Um, so that, that I think we need to do unapologetically. MLR, appreciate that support. Father's time, appreciate the support on, on uh, the super chat. So. Yeah, look out for Biden and Harris because they care, I guess. Right. Um, next up, some of you have seen this. San Antonio police admit they wrongfully arrested a black jogger now charged with assaulting an officer. Matthias Ometu, 33, was out for a jog on Tuesday in San Antonio, Texas, when he was approached by police, arrested and shoved into the back of a patrol car. Police admitted that Ometu is not the criminal suspect they were looking for. So be careful. Jogging is now, uh, it could be a capital offense, right? So simply for existing. And many of us have had these experiences. I, I mean, I can go back to nine years old having these kind of experiences, but um, they've not stopped. So just thought it important to put on the radar uh, as with most of these issues I'm bringing to you. Uh, this one is a trip. California couple harassed by cops while doing inventory after store hours. Officers uh, leave after a white man vouches for them. Cop says, that's all I needed to know. Right. Interesting. Right. Black business owner got into a heated argument with a California policeman after officers demanded he prove he had a right to be in his own store after business hours. Incident occurred around 1 a.m. on Friday at the Yima clothing store in Northern California uh, in the town of Tiburon. Tiburon, California, according to the Marin Independent Journal, uh, Yama Khalif was going through inventory with his wife, Hawi Awash, and a friend 
when they noticed a Tiburon police cruiser drive by the store at least three times before it parked. After about 20 minutes, the officer approached Khalif, demanding identification and questioning why they were in their own store. Yolanda, sweetheart, good to, good to see you. Thank you for the cash app. I hope you're well. Um, so this is the kind of thing that happens. And when you have people tell you that you just need to get a degree, you'll be fine. You just need to own a business. You'll be fine. You just need to vote. You'll be fine. Um, but you find that when you do all of those things, these incidents still occur. So strangely enough, how you dress, how you speak, what you own, what degree you have, doesn't always tend to stem the tide of how racism tends to function. Right. Jay Jermaine, appreciate that support. Right. This one I thought a number of you would find interesting. Congressional in investigation finds over one billion dollars in PPP fraud. Right. Uh, this is the coronavirus aid fraud. The wealthy and well-connected were showered with our tax dollars and fraudsters took advantage of the program's troubling lack of transparency. Over one billion dollars in emergency coronavirus aid relief went to companies that double dipped and received multiple paycheck protection program loans in violation of the program's rules, according to a preliminary analysis released Tuesday by the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis. Right. Uh, it said that. Um, let me see. Multiple areas of potential waste and fraud in the program, uh, often referred to as PPP, which was part of the $2 trillion CARES Act, right? The program offered qualifying small businesses up to $10 million in emergency and forgivable loans to shore up their payrolls and meet basic expenses. Now, I was going to talk about this a little bit later, but I will bring it up now because I definitely don't want to miss it. One of the things I noticed, and I posted this, I posted a question on Facebook a couple of days ago. Uh, because a colleague of mine, friend of mine, she let me know about the number of grants that she's found and applied to. Uh, that so what we're seeing in terms of these the small business support, right? Since the COVID, is you have grants on the basis of race, right? There's that flat blackness I talked about. You have them on the basis of gender, which means in the U.S., gender only applies to women, right? And then you have those designated specifically for black women. How many of you have found grants for black male small business supports? Don't worry, I'll wait. All right. Not many. I haven't run across anybody. Matter of fact, I spoke to a grant writer. He hadn't come across any. I posed the question in Facebook, had dozens of responses. Nobody had seen any. Now, that's not to say you might not know of one or two, but in light of what we see others getting, even others within the black community, I find it interesting how few are targeted to black men. Now, this is not something surprising. Right. Black men aren't even waiting for it. The interesting thing is black men are not even upset about it because we're used to not having any support. Right. But the interesting thing is the leading demographic, the most highly enrolled in, in higher education demographic in the country, the ones who are leading us politically, the ones who are leading us in business, have nothing to say about their husbands, sons getting those either. Right. So understand something when you're talking about whites, if you have a husband and wife team, for example, both of whom own a business, they may, they may even be able to get two PPP loans within one household. We don't. Majority of our households are single parent, so we don't. And there's no advocation coming for black men who have not gotten these. And I think there are some greater implications of that that I'm going to talk about a little later. But I think it's important to put on the table. So even though this piece is looking at the scandal and the fraud that businesses have engaged in to absorb many of these funds, when we actually look at the kinds of grants and support systems available, even when they target black folk, they seem to somehow forget black men. 
and I and and you know some of the data coming out there's conflicting data, but some of it suggests that you know black women have more uh, more uh, businesses or at least have opened more more recently. I would argue black men have had businesses for decades that just haven't been recognized as businesses, right? Because we don't often get licensed. We don't it, it, often we're not prepared for what may come with that. So we work under the radar. But many of us have had businesses even while we had jobs, right? But those businesses often don't count. And strangely enough, when you have new opportunities for small business support, nobody comes looking for black men. So this becomes another way that black men um, are impacted, right? So check into that if you're interested. Uh, another piece from Post and Courier, right? Autopsy of Elijah Weatherspoon, teen missing from boat, concludes death by drowning. This was a young man named Elijah Nikki Weatherspoon. 18-year-old who went missing from a boat in Cooper River has concluded that he died from drowning. So apparently what happened is that uh, he went out with, I think, about eight friends, all of whom were white, uh, and did not come back, right? Uh, investigators said he jumped from the boat without a life vest and didn't resurface. His body was recovered near, I guess, Sullivan's Island on June 28th. Um, this is an article you can find in postingcourier.com. Right. But nonetheless, points out that this young brother um, apparently died of circumstances that have not been completely revealed. Uh, so we need to see what that is. Mr. Edward Hyde with the huge uh, uh, support uh, on the cash app. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that very much. All right. So look into that. Let's keep up with it as we find out what more about what's happening. But there have been a number of these cases in the last few months. Where young brothers who are apparently hanging out with uh, a number of whites just come up missing. I've reported on this in other shows in different circumstances, and I don't hear from them again. Next up, Mississippi, Mississippi Supreme Court rules that black man on death row for almost 30 years deserves new trial after crucial uh, new evidence is presented. And this is an interesting one, right? This Mississippi Supreme Court decided that an inmate has been on death row for nearly 30 years, deserves a new trial, mainly because a dentist's bite mark testimony that was used to convict Eddie Lee Howard in 1992 of a killing has been discredited. Howard, 67, was first convicted of capital murder in 94 for killing 84-year-old Georgia Kemp and was sentenced to death, right? Um, says on February 2nd, 1992, a neighbor noticed smoke rising from Kemp's home in Lowndes County, uh, uh, Mississippi, First responders discovered a small fire inside the living room of the house and found Kemp's body on her bedroom floor. Her legs were covered in blood and the bloody knife was found on top of the bed. She had been beaten, stabbed to death and was likely raped. Howard was arrested six days later. Right? Howard's conviction was overturned in 97, but he was convicted a second time in 2000 after Dr. Michael West, a dentist, testified that bite marks supposedly found on Kemp's arm and neck were consistent with Howard's teeth. Right? Uh, Dr. West himself has since stated that bite mark evidence should not be used in court because it is unreliable. It's a form of forensic evidence that isn't depended upon. At a 2012 deposition, West said, I no longer believe in bite mark analysis. I don't think it should be used in court. I think you should use DNA, uh, throw bite marks out, right? Uh, he developed his own techniques that he once claimed allowed him to conclusively connect bite marks on the skin to a single individual. He once said he could link bite marks left on a sandwich at a crime scene to a primary suspect. He later admitted the science is not as exact as I had hoped. 
um, medical examiner also testified, Stephen Hain, uh, about forensic evidence at, uh, at the trial, never claimed that he saw any bite marks on Kemp's body until after several days had passed and Howard had been identified as a primary suspect. So what may have happened here is that these so-called bite marks may have been applied after the death. We don't know, but, neither, but nonetheless, uh, the impact of something like this on his life, this man has been on death row for 30 years. And if he is indeed innocent, uh, can you imagine losing 30 years of it? I mean, 1992, 94, I'm a young man in college. He is 67, sitting in a cell, over evidence that the, the people who pushed for it now admit is unreliable. Um, that's devastating. What's up, Officer Faulkner? Good to see you in here. Thanks for the support, sir. All right. Um, let's see. So check that out if it's of interest to you. All right, another one up. Married 33-year-old teacher's secret sex with schoolboy, 15-year-old schoolboy. Secret sex. Yeah. When women rape, they, they have secret sex. When men rape, it's rape. They, I, I've covered these articles, scores of them. They've rarely used the word rape or sexual assault for that matter. A shout out to uh, Green Gorilla, the G with the PhD for sending me this one. Hopefully he'll go into more depth. Uh, I'm only going to just kind of throw it at you to look at. Uh, this is something you can find on dailymail.co.uk. Um, so basically, a married teacher, 33, had what she called secret sex with a 15-year-old schoolboy in a field before she sent him topless photos that eventually were passed around the school. Candace Barber, 35, allegedly told the boy she might be pregnant with his baby. They slept together following a sports award evening at school. She denies charges involving boy and including uh, breaching a position of trust. Um, Buckinghamshire-based barber told police her account must have been hacked. I don't All I can say is these kind of things tend to happen a lot more often than people suspect, but we have the, di we have a wholly different response. You know, most of the time we're kind of lax about it. And I've worked with young men who've been violated by grown women. And as much as we want to say that it's a rite of passage, much of the time it has devastating emotional consequences for a lot of young men, especially if it's something that they're really not ready for. Right. But at the end of the day, if this is a 35, 33 year old man and a 15 year old girl, we very clearly know how to interpret that. But articles won't even use the terms rape or sexual assault when it often comes to potential or alleged female aggressors. Right. This is an interesting one as well. Judge refuses to jail pedophile who abused six kids because he's considered too fat for prison. Yes, you heard that correctly. Morbidly obese teacher Peter John O'Neill pled guilty to abusing six children. Um, judge refused to jail him because he's morbidly obese, told he was too fat to go to prison. 61-year-old um, uh, O'Neill won't spend a single day in jail because it would cost up to 40000 just to transport him due to his weight. O'Neill is now alleged to stay home while he awaits the court's decision on sentencing and uh, is supported by a daily carer. So yeah, you go ahead, go ahead and think about that. We've heard of all kinds of excuses why uh, white folks can't go to jail. Apparently one of them is that if you're too fat, you can't go. I wanted to shout out this young man. I saw him, um, this posted on Instagram. Um, Seven-year-old Thomas Moore grew his hair for two years after seeing a YouTube video of a little girl battling cancer. He wanted to know why the girl had no hair after his mom explained it due to chemotherapy. He grew enough for three wigs. Shout out to this young man, uh, Mr. Moore, uh, for doing that. 
this is what I call, uh, you know, black sacred masculine, um, mainly acknowledging or the sacred black masculine, mainly acknowledging men who do this kind of men and boys who do this kind of stuff every day, despite that often they are overlooked. Right. <sighs> Next up, the reboot of the color purple is in the works. Oprah Winfrey is attempting to reboot the movie that has de definitely been one of the signature hallmarks of the onset of the Black Gender War, right? The movie where you take a fairly well-to-do Black man who owns a two-story house in a fairly large farming area, the early part of the 20th century. Um, I don't know how many of those you managed to find, but he apparently engages in an abusive marriage with an underage girl, and somehow he becomes the face of abuse and oppression for all black women because he's worse than slavery or reconstruction or anything that happened there at all. So, I mean, you know, I think I said this before, I have family members who still hate Danny Glover just because of that performance. And yet, how many misters were there historically? I mean, we, we, most men at that time, I mean, a lot of black men, you find them in chain gangs, parchment farms, but you're gonna make a movie about a black man in the turning of the 20th century owns a two-story house. Anyway, so she's trying to do it again. I think she's trying to reintroduce this whole concept to a whole new generation. And I think it's important that we be very clear about the impact of this the last time she did it. So, um, you know, something to consider and to uh, definitely challenge this type of historical analysis. Now on to one that... Uh, we've all been familiar with, right? Um, the loss of one Chadwick Boseman, uh, Global Image. He was the first to embody in a live action format, a hero that I've been reading, artists appreciate that support. Uh, hero I've been reading about my entire life. Um, I'm a 40 year comic book collector. Black Panther was one I never thought I'd see reach the screen. Um, I may have had problems with the way his character was written but I do support uh, this brother's performance. I think he was an, an incredible talent. Uh, if you haven't heard Angry Man, uh, Juan Angry Man Valdez on YouTube, his statements about uh, Chadwick, you definitely need to go check that out. I, I reposted it both on my Facebook page and in the community section of my YouTube page because it was powerful indeed. And I think it needs to be um, acknowledged, but nonetheless, uh, Chadwick passed away due to stage four colon cancer. And this is why I was suggesting that we definitely need to make sure, brothers, that we get checked. The man was 43, right? In October, I will be three years older than he, and he's gone, right? And this is ridiculous, but nonetheless, uh, something that has happened. And one of the big issues that I immediately started to see was whether or not they would pass the torch from one character to another. It appears we have a caller um, on hold. So, caller, give us your name and your city. Let's see if you're still there. Caller, can you hear me? Uh, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. What's your name and where are you calling from? Okay, yes. My, my name is Dawood Muhammad. I'm the uh, I'm calling from out of St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. How, how are you, sir? Fine, sir. Uh, striving hard to make my word bond. That's right. That's right. Well, what did you have to say? What did you want to jump in on? I, I'm. Uh, uh, this is my first time uh, uh, coming uh, to your program uh, format. I just 
saw it on my uh, messaging, and I just, you know, please forgive me, I'm just coming in uh, for the first time, and I, if you could just brief me on what the topic is so that I could be able to maybe reply to it. I was listening to something you were saying just recently, and I'm in uh, complete, uh, I love the idea that you mentioned something about you have, you're, you're a book collector, is that what you are? A historic book collector? <laughs> Well, I, I, I'm a collector of a few things, and yes, books is high up on that list. But um, I actually haven't gotten to the main topic of the show yet, so I'm I'm getting there. Um, and if you wouldn't mind, I, I'd like to get your opinion once once we get started. So if you could just hold, uh, when I get to it, uh, you'll know, and and from there we'll be able to engage. But I do appreciate you calling in. Okay. So just go ahead. Yes, well, so real brief, real brief. I'm an engineer. I'm an owner of uh, Solar Energy. LLC, and I've uh, been around for a long time as an advocate and design system design engineer. Okay. Well, beautiful. I'm glad to get uh, Black Engineers some press. But go ahead and mute your line, and we'll we'll, we'll, we'll bring you back in, okay? Sure. Thank you very much. Right. Sure. All right. So as far as this, you know, one of the issues brought up, and I got to shout this brother Stephen Barnes out, who posted an F wall for putting this on my Facebook post talking about uh, Black Panther, and he mentions in here how Marvel, uh, you know, he would be disappointed if they used this as an opportunity to replace Panther with Shuri, his sister. I've, I've written a piece on this on my blog, newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com. At the end of the day, this is one of the only characters I've ever seen actually have his greatest superpower taken away from him in terms of the Black Panther. Uh, and that is his mind. He's supposed to be one of the top in 10 intellects on the planet. And they gave that to his little sister. That would be like, you know, giving Lois Lane Superman super strength. And nobody said anything. All right? And so we all knew based on the comics that they would replace Black Panther with his younger sister at some point. They even hinted at it in the movie at a certain point. Um, but the question many people are asking is whether or not this is going to be used as an opportunity to uh, replace him. And so shout out to Stephen Barnes for challenging that and hopefully giving us something to reflect on, because at the end of the day, you know, black boys, black men have fought for decades to have a space in comics. And there's absolutely nothing wrong whatsoever with black women demanding a space. But for boys who've been collecting comics for over 40 years and not being able to see the full representation of the character that may have inspired them to go into science and math, it was disappointing to see this kind of panther the way he was presented. But none of that do I extend to Chadwick. He did a beautiful job. I think this had to do with the writing, right? Um, all right. So one of the things that I started doing very recently, as some of you guys know, is doing with the Black Male Political Agenda. And I promised you every show where I have a new edition coming from you, uh, I would add it and we would kind of look at that. So um, this is what we already have. Some of you in the last few shows have seen this. Right, mandatory DNA testing at birth, family court reform, single sex education, homelessness, right, unemployment, criminal sentencing reform. These are some of the basic ones that I started with. And then later we had some contributions made by Adam Ibmore. Uh, if you're not familiar with this, you can listen to my last show. We go into a little more detail, but you can see the ideas listed here, abolishing the Duluth model, which kind of pre, you know, uh, predetermines men's guilt right, and all dealings in regard to domestic uh, violence, reinstituting at-fault divorce standards, legally recognizing withholding of sex as sexual abuse, giving men the legal window and right to a financial abortion, 
right? So that basically means if a woman says my has the right to say my body, my choice, a man should have the opportunity to opt out of an unwanted pregnancy. Uh, Dave Chappelle joked about this uh, and made a compelling point that if you find financial abortion to be wrong, then maybe all kinds are wrong, uh, all kinds of abortion. So nonetheless, these are a couple of the issues here uh, that we've already talked about. But there are three more that I'm adding to this list that I want you all to think about as in terms of the black male political agenda. First of which is licensing law enforcement. This comes from one David Williams who shot me this image, uh, shot me this quote um, and sent it to me uh, via a messenger uh, uh, post. And I thought it interesting, right? Law enforcement professionals have a revocable license that can be permanently stripped to keep them out of professions like lawyers, doctors, etc. Uh, and so this is an interesting one to consider. AB Media, appreciate that support because it actually provides a degree of accountability. Because one of the things we've seen happening over the years is that police officers will abuse, if not kill, many black men. And then, you know, they'll, they'll be placed on uh, leave with pay and then end up uh, at worst in another precinct um, continuing to do what they do. Right. So uh, David here, uh, you know, uh, puts forth the notion that there should be a licensing issue that goes into that, that uh, hopefully will serve as some kind of incentive to be more careful, you know, in terms of how you actually engage the citizens you're supposed to be protecting and serving, because there is a direct repercussion on whether or not you'll be able to work in your chosen field. Uh, the second one up is new cancer treatment and recognition. Right. This had to do with I had to give a presentation that I had to pre-record for my campus. And actually, it's the event is going on right now, which is why I had to pre-record it. And I was asked to say a few words on Chadwick Bozeman, And I did. But with that, I wanted to give some data right, about the state of black men in regard to cancer. And so one of the things, as you can see here, that I point out is that black men uh, develop cancer at slightly less rates than white men and white women and develop it and die from it more than white men, white women, and black women. So basically, according to the data, and I'm going to show you some charts in a moment, what we see happening with black males is that, um, you know, we, we, we don't get, we don't get cancer, you know, and these are a variety of different kinds of cancers we're talking about. Overall, we don't get it as much as white men and white women, but that actually might have to do with diagnosis. So it might have to do with whether or not we're diagnosed at all. But what we do know is we're diagnosed less than white men and white women for it, but we die more. And in terms of black women, we are diagnosed more and we die more from it altogether. And yet when my son would come home from school, they would do these, you know, fundraising marches or fundraising, you know, uh, track and field events, raising funds for breast cancer. And he'd come back with a little, you know, pink ribbon or whatever. I've never once seen his K through 12 or college for that matter. I've, you know, I've never once seen anything done for prostate cancer, for men dealing with colon cancer. I've not even seen the data presented to them, right? But we do know how to emote and to organize around forms of cancer that impact women and girls, right? So that being said, uh, there's a huge vacuum in men's experiences. Maurice, appreciate that support on the Cash App as well as a vacuum when it comes to black men in particular who are suffering from cancer. And what we also know is we can look at the breakdown by state and we find it to be particularly prevalent in the South, uh, but you know, Arkansas, Alabama, Connecticut, DC, uh, Washington, DC, that is Georgia, Hawaii, Illinois, 
Iowa, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Nebraska, Tennessee, and for some strange reason, especially Wisconsin, right, um, you, you find that black men uh, suffer from cancer at extremely high rates compared to other groups. Uh, and even for me, across getting five different degrees in a 15-year uh, period, I never once in class had this brought up in regard to you know, black men and their experiences. We heard, you know, most of the classes I took that dealt with gender, even when they weren't necessarily supposed to, and the teacher decided to make it a gender course, we of course covered breast cancer, we covered the victimization of women and girls, and especially black women. Nobody had a word to say about prostate cancer or any other kind of cancer that men, most particularly black men, suffer from. Um, so, and I'll show you in a minute why that's, matter of fact, I'm gonna go to that right now and show you why it's important. If you look at these two charts here, the one on the left is for males. Well, actually, they both cover male and female, right? Um, the one on the left deals with age-adjusted incidence rates for African-Americans by sight and sex. And the one on the right deals with age-adjusted mortality rates for African-Americans by sight and sex. So the one on the left deals with incident, deals with, you know, uh, being diagnosed. The one on the right deals with uh, dying. One of the things you might notice if you look at the left side of each one of these images, it deals with rate per 100,000. And so just very roughly, and you can screenshot this and look, in more, look at it in more depth if you so choose. It's all you know, well and good. And if you want the, uh, the, the actual report this comes out of, you can actually message me and I'll send that to you. Uh, you can email me if you go to my website, uh, www.th.com. Uh, thassanjohnson.com. You can send me a message there. I'll send you the link for where I got this report. But if you notice the left side where it says rate per, per 100,000, what you actually see happening is that the women's scale is considerably lower right, than the men's scale. So the scale itself that they're using. So if you just look at this at, at face value, you see a number of colored lines and they look you know pretty even just in terms of where they're located. But if you actually look at the rate per 100,000, you find that men's the very scale that's being used is two to, uh, to three times larger, depending on what you're looking at. So if you're looking at rate of incidence, um, the highest the scale gets for women is about zero to 160 per 100,000. But for men, it's zero to 350 per 100,000. When you talk about mortality, right, it, for the women, it's zero to 50. And for the men, it's zero to 140 per 100,000. So at the end of the day, when we talk about these issues, men are suffering, black men most particularly, from cancer in ways that we don't talk about, and yet nobody has anything to say about it. And so when somebody like Chadwick Bozeman dies, we feel for him as we rightly should. Jared, Jared appreciate the support. As we rightly should feel for him, uh, we don't necessarily connect that to the larger issue that affects scores of black men. And I don't, you know, I, you know, I of course wouldn't want this brother to pass at all. But if he had to pass, I hope it at least shines some light on what black men are experiencing beyond our just, you know, select few, because this is actually fairly impactful on a wide scale. And, we have, and we're not even talking about the environmental causes where poor black folk in particular are in a variety of states are generally, uh, you know, forcibly located in areas that uh, produce higher rates of cancer. Uh, but we still find in the midst of all that, that black men suffer from it disproportionately. So, um that being said, please look into that if you find that uh, noteworthy and engage it from there. The last point on the black male political agenda I wanted to add for tonight is what we talked about a little earlier in terms of small business support. 
right? Commensurate with our status in society and taking into account the lack of capital and inherited wealth in the black community, black male owned businesses should be targeted, particularly during COVID for support. And I raise this again because we see support coming for black women, but not necessarily for black men. And the reason that this is important is when you start to talk about the ways in which uh, our community is being primed for the future, right? What we've seen happening in the last 50 years is that black women have been targeted for higher education. Black males have been targeted for prison, right? Black women have been targeted for a certain degree of state support, even if they're poor. Black males often can't get that same support. And if anything, if they if fraternize too greatly with those black women on support, they can lose them their support, right? So this is a dynamic we're gonna talk about in a little bit that speaks to this. But my only point is that what I'm finding is that I think even with the, this kind of small business support issue going on right now in COVID, I think what we're looking at is really a restructuring, a re-social engineering of the black community in a way that positions and primes black women for a, a, a more substantive position in the, the, in the coming economy, if it survives with all that's going on, but also in a way that further underdevelops black men, right? Because at the end of the day, these kind of grants, and I'm talking to people who are getting five, 10, 15,000, 20,000, 50,000 dollars in grants to keep their businesses afloat. I have not run across very many black men, and I'm saying very many just to be kind. Um, I haven't run across any. And that's not to say no black man has gotten one, but it is to say black men are not targeted to get them. And we need this kind of support. And the degree to which nobody is raising an outcry about this, and we're looking at the way this can impact the next number of years. Uh, businesses are, are, are going out of business, large scale and small, at an alarming rate. And yet if black men can't get the support they need to keep their businesses afloat and businesses in a capitalist system in a capitalist system require capital. So much of most of our businesses, uh, we have no capital to begin with anyway. And 99 percent of our of black women's businesses, over 90 percent of black owned businesses only have one employee. So how much does a 20 to 50 thousand dollar injection mean to a small business, especially during covid? Right. How important is that? And how important is it that you don't get it? What then happens to small businesses that haven't even had a chance to get off the ground or businesses that have been around a while, but despite how they look, may have been holding on by a shoestring or whatever. You know, at the end of the day, the impact about all of this is incredibly important to reflect upon. Um, okay, let me see. Shout out ah, call me to Mike Ship. So this was talked about on the Black Brain Trust when they talked about Black-owned businesses not getting support. I didn't know that. I'm glad you guys talked about it. Definitely go out and check the Black Brain, Black Brain Trust on YouTube. Look into those conversations. I'm sure the brothers took it where it needed to go. Um, so I just want to support that. Okay. All right. So let me move ahead a little bit. Get out of here. I think that's one of the more important things to take into account. Now, I talked about in the title that I was going to address what I consider to be a new form of anti-Black misandry. Now, I believe, uh, unless I dreamed that I did this and I didn't, but hopefully I did, in the description on YouTube, I put in a couple links to past shows that I've done where I've gone into how I define anti-Black misandry. Now, this is a concept that is, is important 
and central to black male studies, as well as black masculinism, right? The movement for black men uh, and for black men to be able to articulate their own experiences. And the formal definition of black masculinism you can find on my blog, newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com. You can click the about button and you can see it there. But as we talk about black male studies and black masculinism, and we look at this concept of anti-black misandry, Solus, appreciate that support. What's important to note is that it presents itself in different forms, right? And so I listed out over the years, at first there were nine and there were 11, now I've put out 12, uh, different forms of what, what I refer to as anti-Black misandry, right? So, uh, so I've covered them in, in different contexts at different points in time. We have anti-Black misandric heterophobia, right? Heterophobia having to do with the fear of straight Black men. Uh, anti-Black misandric homophobia. Um, anti-black misandric phallophobia, male disposability, appropriation, homoeroticism, transphilia and homophilia, sexual objectification, social impotence, transference. And very recently I dealt with uh, this concept of what I refer to as coarse and refined anti-black misandry, right? And that had to do with, um, you know, whether or not the person extending the misandry is doing so in a very refined, you know, language, doing it usually wrapped up in academic jargon, or whether they were very coarse and blunt uh, about uh, the misandry extended, the hatred extended to black men. Um, but I also wanted to extend uh, another definition, and, and I think it's due, it's overdue for that matter, uh, in that regard. And it actually rests on a prior concept that I've developed um, and written about, but hadn't talked about in my show. And that is the concept of what I call the promotion demotion thesis. And this has to do with what I was talking about a little earlier, right? Basically, uh, the thesis proposes that society incentivized Black men to avoid family production by environment, family court judgment, carceral policy, massive unemployment, a lack of state resources, war, low quality education and limited societal investment. And I'm sure I can add a few more to that, right? But nonetheless, these were the mechanisms by which black men were um, uh, incentivized to avoid family for, for traditional family production. So in other words, when black men began to marry less, particularly in the 1970s, it wasn't because they were lazy. It wasn't because they hated family. It wasn't because they were incapable of being fathers. And these those three things I just mentioned, I received in graduate school courses by black women professors. Those were reasons that I was given verbatim for why black men refused to marry. Verbatim. No data, no citations. Just offhand spoken of in class. And I'm paying 20, tens of 20, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to get that as a rationale, right? No kind of analysis, no reflection. They didn't even ask the men in the room. Could have at least done that. But anyway, I digress. My point here is that um, many of these come out of a subculture of violence theory. Look back at my interview with Dr. Tommy Curry to learn more about that. But the idea here is that black men have been socially and institutionally excluded from family while also participating in a silent protest of their own standing in intimate relationships with black women for decades, right? And basically what I'm saying here is that the promotion demotion thesis really kind of signifies this time period from the 1960s to the 1980s, most especially, where, and it didn't stop, 
That's just the pe the period where I think it was, you know, kind of framed, right? Where black men were on a trajectory uh, downward, and black women were on a trajectory upward. And up by upward, I mean at least being able to gain the trappings of middle class life, where black men were, you know, targeted. Whether you're talking about K through 12 education, whether you're talking about marriage, whether you're talking about employment, whether you're talking about upper higher education. Black men were de-incentivized in many ways from being able to pursue those to the same degree. Um, and that being said, I think this is an intentional act. I think it has a lot to do with depopulation. I think it has a lot to do with a response, a political response, to the civil rights movement, which was based on the black family. But nevertheless, these were the responses, I think, initiated by the state that undermined the black family, but most particularly undermined the black family by projecting the women upward and more inclusively in society. So even the grants I was talking about a moment ago are a reaffirmation to black women that they have a place in society. A lot of the time when I talk to sisters, they have a greater faith in the society and what can happen, right? The idea of being able to get a grant, the idea of being able to get some kind of support for an endeavor you're engaged in. I, I find few men, even men like myself who are educated with degrees, who, who actually have a certain level of faith that the system will work in their interests. Black men generally aren't allowed to, to cultivate that faith. I'm not saying that no black men have it. Some do. But I'm saying as a whole, I don't find that black men have an exceptionally large amount of that kind of faith because there haven't been moments where that has been cultivated to a great, a great enough degree. Whereas with women, I tend to see that that has happened. Right. A certain inbred faith. And that faith is actually part of a dynamic that's gone on for several decades. And, and we can trace it in different ways further than that. But we, I think we see the most apparent aspects of it in the last few decades. And what that has done is created two, two fundamentally different qualities of life for black men and for black women. Right. And, and, and in so doing, Right. We have sometimes completely opposing views about the same things. And part of that and much of that is because we don't have the same experiences. So as long as we push this notion that we're, we're black and therefore we have the same experiences, we end up missing the nuance that really captures the differences between our lifestyles, our quality of life, our political agendas, all of that, even religiously and spiritually. It's not an accident that many black men have left the Christian church. Whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it or not, not my point. Simply that it's happened, right? The rise of Islam. I'm not talking about, you know, which religion is better. I'm asking sociologically, why do you think these differences have occurred? Well, I'm arguing that the quality of life is so different between black men and women that it has caused a different response to a wide variety of, 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 um, of issues, wide variety, right? And so... That's what the promotion demotion thesis speaks to, right? And with that, we get to the 12th level of what I call uh, anti-Black misandry. In this form, it's called anti-Black misandric familial demotion slash expulsion. And I know for those listening on inner light, that's a mouthful. It's a mouthful in general, a little easier to take in when you can look at it visually. But my point here is simply that when you talk about familial demotion, right, the position of Black men has been lowered over the last few decades. And expulsion, meaning that they've been expelled altogether. Now, what do I mean? I have a couple of uh, posts. They're on my phone, and I didn't put them in this PowerPoint um, to kind of you know 
show what I mean, but basically there's a number of posts that I could pull up for you where you actually see black women making posts in social media talking about, I don't know why fathers are necessary. I don't know why people think men need to be involved in family production at all, right? Uh, I think Nisi Nash just recently married a woman. I saw a number of posts talking about um, black men, you need to do better. We're marrying ourselves now. We don't need you. You know, these kind of derogatory posts. And, I, and I'm not going to suggest that these random individuals uh, articulate all of the nuance that, you know, a lot of people are feeling and thinking so on and so forth. But it's there. And I think a low level kind of misandry has been boiling for decades. When I came into it in the 1980s, it was niggas ain't shit. It was, um, you know, ain't nothing going on but the rent. I mean, Eddie Murphy talked about this in Raw. It was it was apparent at that time that you could you could hear the rhetoric, right? You could hear the rhetoric begin very fervently in the 80s and then work its way into mainstream culture where black women were calling out black men for being inadequate, inadequate because they couldn't keep up financially, inadequate because they couldn't keep up in terms of education. But nobody wanted to acknowledge the systemic barriers that were there because at the end of the day, we're all black, right? So if black women don't experience systemic barriers to the same degree that black men do, the problem must be black men and black men must therefore be deficient in some way. Because as a black woman, if you're not having the same experiences, then it has to be because he's just inherently trifling, right? So this idea of familial demotion, right? The downplaying of their relevance to families and feminist gender theory, mainstream media, and women's casual culture. By casual culture, I mean just the way they casually talk to each other, right? If you go back and watch Spike Lee's Jungle Fever, right? One of the seminal moments of that film is what they call the war room. Right, where the women get together and have this conversation about black men. I, I was born in 74. I my the majority of my family are female. Right? Majority of my family are female. There in my family, especially on my mother's side, we have one male every generation. My generation, that was me. Next generation of men in my family is my son. Right? Only men in my family for the most part. Right? Uh, unless you start talking about distant cousins or whatever, but I'm talking about in the primary line from grandmothers to down, it, it's just me and my son. That said, I done sat through many a war council as a little boy. I sat on the stairs and listened. Sometimes I was allowed in the room. Sometimes it happened when we were at the dinner table and the, and, and the women were in the living room. Sometimes it happened during Thanksgiving or family gatherings or God forbid family reunions. It became a pastime. It was damn, damn near like the Soul Train line at the end of the party. It was, it was, it was, it was such a part of the damn occurrence that nobody thought it strange. It was just, you know, it was just what to expect. And the older men would jokingly laugh about it. They'd say things like, "Boy, don't you go in that kitchen? Don't you go in that living room? They having a war council." You know, kind of dumb mess. But anyway, my point is the casual culture I'm referring to here is the casual misandry that became very common in black families in the last number of decades, right? And I think it's only been bolstered by gender, feminist gender theory, it's been bolstered by feminist mainstream productions that, that mainstream this kind of, you know, feminism that came out of, you know, black studies, that came out of the kind of intersection between black studies and women's studies, right? You, you started to hear that being kind of authorized and affirmed in mainstream culture. And this is where you get the color purples, 
right? This is where you get the Terry McMillan films and books, right? This kind of authorized misandry, right? And the way it worked its way into families is it produced an air of support for this type of misandry to be received as normal to the point where boys grew up with it and nobody said anything. Oh, if you did any of you, if you dated more than one girl by the time you were in high school, they call you a sexist. But nobody would acknowledge that you may have grown up listening to 20, 30 years of pure misandry coming from the women that you love who brought you into the world and, and cared for you but could casually flip a switch and talk about men as something like something off their shoe while breastfeeding you. No word about that whatsoever. So I argue to this day, that kind of casual misandry still accepted as a normal part of black culture, right? Um, shout out to Leroy and Spook for the support. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry about that. Uh, so anyway, so I, I mentioned mainstream media, gender theory, women's casual culture, um, these kind of things, this kind of way of downplaying the relevance of men in those different contexts has repelled many black men from participating in traditional family production. Thus, from condom wearing, non-monogamy, and life strategies emphasizing non-marital practices to avoiding dating and mating with single mothers, monkism, and even parental abandonment Many black men over the decades have avoided traditional family participation to support more informal practices, despite that they still spend more time with their children and even, according to Judge Joe Brown, pay child support more consistently than any other group of men. This has been made worse because black women have been enabled to use state institutions to control or discipline them at will. And this basically means that whether it has to do with family court, whether it has to do with filing false charges about abuse, whether it has to do with threatening to file false, false charges, what black men have come to know is they don't have the same relationship with the state that black women do. And what that has yielded in many ways is a dynamic where if you can't be controlled more readily in the family, she can use these types of institutions at her beck and call against you. And I've known far too many black men who've had to deal with that. The repercussions of a false charge, the repercussions of having to do any kind of prison time around a false charge, you know, any of that. Now I'm saying that more than the fact that it happens, the impact it has on family dynamics has not been reflected upon anywhere near as much as it needs to be. So in other words, I'm not saying that because your mother sent your father to jail on a false charge, I'm not, yes, that's important. But what I'm saying more than that is the fact that she could, right? The fact that she could has had a greater impact on black families than any of us want to outwardly acknowledge. And that has contributed to men taking a step back in the last five decades from, tr from the traditional family model. You can like it, you can not like it. I'm not authorizing it or, 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 or you know, uh, despising it. I'm simply saying that these are the changes that have taken place. And the reason they've taken place is because there have been policy influences that have shaped behavior. In other words, environment in this context has shaped behavior and has impacted the family. It has directly impacted how the black family functions. All you gotta do, you can take the black family now and compare it to 1920, take a hundred year span. You do the data and you tell me what the family structural, the infrastructural differences are and how they came about. 
right? So when I talk about familial demotion and, expo and expulsion, what I'm saying as a form of misandry, what we've seen with black men is the ways that the way in which that behavior, particularly of women, right, in relation to what they've been able to yield from the state, has influenced relational dynamics and led to the demotion of the male in the family in terms of status and value and the expulsion in many incidents. Now, the other part to that, and I've said this for a while, is that I think many black men in the last few decades, going back again to the 1970s, have had a silent strike. Hence the image that I'm using in this, right? The image that I'm using in for, for the placeholder in YouTube for this, this talk today, right? It's predicated around that. Black men being, you know, experiencing an expulsion from the family, a demotion if they decide to stay, or walking away on their own terms. And I think that's yielded a lot of non-traditional relationships. I, I've seen articles in the last number of years, shout out Marvin uh, for the support. Uh, I've seen articles in the last number of years talking about how women don't want to get married and how they're enjoying their careers. And, and that's all well and good. That's fine. But really the elephant in the room nobody wants to talk about is that it's actually the men who've been stepping away from this. Nobody wants to talk about that. We wanna empower women by suggesting that they're the ones doing this because life is just so good that they're enjoying it. And they no longer need to rely on men. Yet strangely, when COVID hit, that discussion began to change. Even prior to COVID in the last couple of years, as we've seen the state begin to withdraw certain types of support, you know, in terms of Trump, for example, we started to see that you had a number of women that were starting to question whether or not they actually needed their men. Because all of a sudden the state was no longer as dependable as it was. But this has been going on for decades. And I think men and see, here's the thing. When you talk about a silent strike. This was produced again by conditions. Right. So that said, it's not something that had to be overtly politicized. What do I mean? It's not something that men got together, met, wrote out a, 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 a charter and said, you know what? We're not going to participate in marriage until these laws are changed. I'm not saying that at all, at all. Even when I talk to my father and my uncles and my godfathers, you know, that, that, that group of men from their 60s to their 80s, it wasn't a, a, a planned and orchestrated protest. It was simply making these decisions just work in the best interest of, of, of their own sanity. Or at the very least meant that they you know, didn't have to lose half of what they had simply because a woman didn't find that they were able to meet up to fantasies she's had about marriage since she was five. These were common sense decisions made very practically in many instances. It was messy. It was a very messy time. But one of the things you notice from the baby boomer generation to the Generation X, Black men, Generation X didn't reverse the decisions Black men made in the, in, in the 70s in particular in response to marriage and mating. They actually continued it and advanced it, meaning they got married less. The difference, however, is they did a better job in terms of staying in contact with their children. And so what you start to see over the last 20 years is the data showing that black fathers participate a great deal more and more with their children. But in terms of marriage and formal traditional dating and mating, a lot of that's changed. And it's changed for very real practical reasons. 
and many of which are not brought up, you know, in the mainstream discussions about relationships and marriage. So the image that's constantly put forth is one that, you know, in the 80s, the language they used was that men were afraid of commitment. That was the language that was popular at the time. And then it went from men are afraid of commitment to what is the language now? Women don't want to get married because they're enjoying life. None of that. None of that is real. Those are pop culture ways of explaining something to make people feel affirmed and good, despite what's actually going on. And what's actually going on is that men have begun to see over time, black men most especially, that none of this had any practical benefit to them. In fact, it served as a detriment. Look, the very first day, I've been teaching at Fresno State for 12 years. I've been teaching for 22 overall. My very first day at an orientation at Fresno State, one of the things they told me was that if you owe back child support, we as a state institution may take 100% of your paycheck. Now, that wasn't a concern for me. You know, I only had a child with my wife who I was with at the time. So it wasn't that that, that, that bothered me for personal reasons. But when I thought about it, I was like, I was astounded. I'm like, there are men who are working and losing 100% of their checks over this dynamic that they have very little say in. And that doesn't have anything that we're not even talking about jail time or losing even their, their driver's license, none of that. Right? And yet when I've met men who tried to get custody of their kids, uh, Spook, appreciate that support again. A silent exodus by men, absolutely. That's one of the things we've been seeing since the 1970s. Right? But when I talk to men that actually tried to get custody of their kids, it was an uphill battle. Right. And if they did, especially in the 80s and 90s, it was a rare thing. And they had to fight uphill to get it, right? Shout out to my boy Jellaba. He's one of the only people I know that managed to get custody of his kids in the late 1980s, right? At a time where it was practically unheard of for many men to actually get that. And yet, you know, when he, when he and I have conversations about the things he experienced, you know, it, the institutions at Bay, whether we're talking about the police or the courts, would still opt in her favor simply because. Right. And he'd have to go over the whole track record of explaining things to actually, you know, finally be heard. But my only point here is that when we talk about black males and their position in the family, one of the things we have to come to grips with is the way in which this expulsion and demotion has taken place over decades. OK. And it's taken place over decades in a manner that has impacted the black family um, as far as I can see, you know, on a permanent scale. So. Going back to the title of tonight's show, dealing with black women as the buffer class, the exchange that many black women were offered, right, to step back, you know, for or I shouldn't even say step back, to impose new behaviors that have been influenced by policy, right, was the policy, were the benefits that came with that, more consistent employment opportunities to get advanced degrees, opportunities to work white collar jobs and, and be able to live a middle class life. Now, black women are still paid less than white women for the same job, but they were offered the idea. They were offered the dream. And in many ways, on a macro level, were able to benefit from it. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, they still were more, they're still more consistently employed. At least that is before COVID. I'm still anxious to see what the data tells us about that. 
it's been my contention that they've actually lost more jobs during COVID than black men, especially when you consider that prior to COVID in 30 major cities, black men were at 40 to 50% rates of unemployment as it was. So by the time we started to hear that black America lost their employment in February and March. So anyway, I don't want, this is, this is a piece, this is a little uh, statement made by, a uh, Facebook friend of mine, Eddie Miles, that I think encapsulated some of this pretty well, right? He said, I said this on a post with a black woman who was arguing with me about the reality of black male disposability. Perhaps black women don't even see black men as a part of what is referred to when one says the black family. Family planning generally refers to reproductive choices around women's health issues. Family services almost always refers to things for mothers. The word family has been gendered and the gender it's taken on is female. I found that to be extremely important, right? The very idea of gendered or a family, right? In, in terms of how the state recognizes it is overwhelmingly gendered female. Again, men and men and girls, I mean, men and boys don't have a gender. Look, if, if you step on a college campus and you say, I want to take a gender studies course, 99% of the time, anybody you say that to is going to assume you're interested in taking a class on women and girls in some way, shape or form. Could be Asian women, could be all women, could be black women, but the assumption is it's female. Gender does not mean female, but we've learned to interpret it that way. And so what Eddie is pointing to here is that when we talk about how the state, right, levies resources on behalf of family, it's interpreted on female gendered terms. So when we talk about a buffer class, what I'm saying to you is being able to benefit from policy and resources that are extended on behalf of women and girls, right? We have a White House Council on Women and Girls. We got one on men and boys yet? No. When Obama, Obama did push for a Brothers Keepers program, it was the women that actually stepped in and, and, and tore it down. It didn't even have any federal funds attached to it. But the first question they asked was, what about the girls? But y'all already have a, women, a White House Council on Women and Girls. What are you talking about? Didn't matter. Simply because it was for the boys, it was already an offense. Right? It wasn't even for black men. And when you look at the data from employment to cancer rates, black men need it more than anybody. But it still doesn't matter. If you point to that, you're sexist. If you advocate for girls, you're acceptable. You're a good little mascot. But I tell people all the time, mascots get eaten too. Do something wrong and watch what happens. You can put in decades of work supporting women, girls, feminism as a whole. Step out of line and watch what happens. Mascots get eaten too. And yet, black men and boys still suffer in silence. And here's the thing. Black men don't even expect the help. They don't. They don't think about it. They don't reflect upon it. They don't even, this is why even having a conversation about a black male political agenda is an issue because black men ourselves haven't thought about a political agenda because we don't trust the mechanisms of politics. We don't expect any candidate to advocate for anything we're interested in. We don't expect any grants to, to come out and help you with your incense business or with your small business where you, you, you're, you're serving food in a cart or you've come up with a new innovative way to, to build a, you know, and I'm not suggesting that black male businesses are always at the lower end. I mean, you got black males who are doing everything from selling incense to opening banks. Our brothers are all over the place, but we don't expect the help because we have been conditioned to know that we don't get it. 
And our women have been conditioned to not even think about us. It ain't crossed their mind. I can't tell you how many women I'm running to, even here in Fresno, that are, are getting all kinds, they're going for all kinds of state rate opportunities to try and stay afloat. And you know what? Power to them. But does it have to be at the expense of your husbands and your sons? Why has that not been an issue? It's one of the things that just, I mean, I've really had to dip back into meditation over the last couple of years, reading a lot of the information I run across, hearing the stories my brothers tell me about, you know, brothers write me on things that if you have any kind of soul would break you. I told y'all before, I get calls from brothers on the verge of suicide. I get stories about things that their wives did, things that they experienced at the hands of a false, I mean, and yet not even other brothers care a lot of the time. Why? Because we've been so accustomed to this, it's normal. I have a friend of mine, professor. We both went to, to Claremont together. He was in history. I was in cultural studies. He decided to go teach at a research one institution. I always wanted to teach at a state school. I didn't get stuck here because I didn't, you know, no, I couldn't cut the mustard. Or anything. No, I chose to teach at a state school because I wanted to find kids that were like me. By the time I went to college, I went because I was supposed to go. I didn't know any other reason. I wanted to be there to catch kids like me because I had a mentor that I didn't meet till the end of my junior year who reshaped my entire life. That was the first time I had a black male teacher who understood what I was going through better than I did. So as opposed to my relationship with my other professors where I had to fight to for them to recognize that their theories didn't apply to me, this was the first time I had a black male teacher that could sit me down and check me about what was going on in my life and I didn't even have to tell him. Right. So I wanted to be that. And that's why I'm teaching at Fresno State. All the schools I interviewed at were at state schools in California, most particularly, because that's where I wanted to be to help people like me. But anyway, my boy, on the other hand, he went to a research one institution. Brilliant cat. Brilliant cat. You look up Dr. Herb Ruffin when you get a chance. Brilliant brother. Uh, writes a lot on the West. His, his research focus is the history of blacks, black folk in the West. And he came out to Claremont, this is probably four, maybe four years ago, I think, four and a half years ago, somewhere in there. He came to Claremont to visit some of our old professors. Shout out to uh, Dr. Sidney Lamell, uh, black Marxist uh, professor uh, extraordinaire. And Herb went to go check him out. And when he was out there in Claremont, cops rolled up on him, multiple cars, drew down on him, put him on the ground, guns to him, the whole deal. So he has this happen and he calls to tell me about it. And neither one of us had any emotional reaction to it at all. And I know I'm speaking to a lot of black men and understand where I'm coming from because you hear these stories or you go through these experiences, ain't nobody surprised, at least out of your boys. It's not a lot of emotion extended for that. I mean, as long as you survive, we good. But the fact that you had to go through it, you're numb to. I've been thrown over so many police cars and had guns put in my face by cops. I'm, 
I'm numb to it. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm aware enough to want to live and survive the incident. And I'm definitely more worried about my son than I am me. But I'm numb to the shit in general because it's happened so much. You can't go through something from nine years old to 46. Or I'm still 45. And, and, and not get numb to it. But the fact that you're numb doesn't often cross our minds as black men because we've just been so acculturated to this. We don't often even know how to conceptualize what it means to be treated humanely. We don't. We're so used to this. And don't get in the conversation with an older brother because he's going to tell you stories worse than what you've been through. So I'm just, you know, so we've gotten so used to this dynamic that we accept it. And we often don't know how to support one another. We often don't raise the issue of how to support. We often don't know how to organize. We don't often, and, and, and again, I'm saying these things not because brothers are incapable of it. I'm saying it because we've been acculturated to being numb. And we have to find a way to connect beyond the numbness because ain't nobody else coming. Ain't nobody else coming. When I was looking at this grant issue this last week, the only brothers, look, when I raised the question, I didn't even say anything. I just said on Facebook, are y'all familiar? Do y'all know if there are any black male grants? Now, most of the brothers, of course, came in and said, hell no, I ain't seen it. But I had brothers coming in there talking about, well, you know, don't matter. We in this together. We good. What are you talking about? We're not in this together with anybody. Because in, in because nobody's even acknowledged that there's nobody targeting us for anything productive, useful, or helpful. Nobody. And it's been acceptable. That's par for the course. Black men don't expect it. Black women don't challenge it. The black community is averse to it. And only one gender has been allowed access to middle class life, or at least the, the trappings of it. Even if it means getting the trappings with debt that exceeds $100,000. That's still a different quality of life from somebody that wasn't even able to go. Somebody that was put into special ed in kindergarten. Why? Simply because he was sitting in class. Nothing else. And trust me, I've sat in those classes. White kids, Asian kids, Indian kids, don't matter. They all doing the same shit. The black kid will be, get put in special ed, especially the males. The only way I've seen that work for black males to get out of special ed is if they either had an athletic inclination that might help them navigate into college or if they actually were um, above and beyond good students. But here's what I mean by that. Not that they were more intelligent, simply that they knew how to uh, code switch. I was one of those kids that knew how to code switch, grew up in a family full of women. I knew how to not make a white woman uncomfortable. But here's the deal. I had to go above and beyond. I had to smile. I had to have a certain tone of voice. I had to do a bunch of bullshit that wasn't real. And still, that didn't guarantee nothing. It really just had a lot to do with the people I ran across that just assumed that I was harmless. But the brothers that they even imagined posed a threat were immediately shipped out of those classes. And in terms of, of their academic curriculum, they were routed into the ghettos of education. And everybody knew what it was even when we didn't have a language for it as kids, right? But nobody cares. 
I've said this before, I'm gonna keep saying it. 70% of boys, black boys in California in K through 12, illiterate. You see anybody burning down any institutions over it? 70% of black males who go into the largest university system in the country, the Cal State system, 70% statewide drop out their first year because they're either academically unprepared or they can't afford to be there or they're not acculturated to the environment. Does anyone care? I told a young, a, a young man the other day, teacher here in California, he teaches in the high, he, he, he ranges from middle school to high school. And we we're having a conversation. And he was saying, man, I don't see these things you talk about. I said, okay, let me ask you a question. If 70% of black girls couldn't read tomorrow, what do you think their mothers would do? If 70% of girls were dropping out of college their first year, what do you think would happen? I'll let you answer that. Is it different? Or am I imagining this? I don't know. So that said, part of what I wanted to just get across to you guys tonight is that this buffer class idea is not an accident. It's been decades in the making and it's real. And it is even working through COVID, All right? So even working through COVID, still happening. Access to resources, access to independent businesses, especially for a community that doesn't have any inherited wealth or capital. And it makes a huge difference in terms of expanding on one's business. So this is just the latest example of it, but there are many more from education to employment to all of that, that impacts how we function on a day-to-day -day basis, right? And that impact has not been properly theorized. So what I submit to you is this idea That what we're dealing with is familial demotion and expulsion. And it is a form of black male hatred. Is my caller still there? Because I have this strange beeping that's happening. Anyway. That said. Um, that's yes. all. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that are you there? Yes, sir. Okay. Did you have any questions at this point? I had you on. I had you on mute uh, so that I didn't want any background noise to interfere with what you're saying. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, mm -hmm. And I want to say uh, just real quick, Gotti, appreciate the support. Um, let me see if I overlooked anybody submitting um, re uh, uh, funds. I forgive me if I overlooked you. Seven Project, appreciate that support. Um, thank you. But yes, sir, any thoughts, reflections, observations, questions about what I propose? Everything is, uh, it's what's, it, from what I'm hearing, is well thought out. It, it, it kind of um, touched me. Uh, if I can just kind of show the experiences of after hearing your words, what it had done, it made me reflect back when I was a child. And... What I mean by that is, and I remember that in in 1960s and early 70s, there was no such thing. Of, of, there was very few. Um, you couldn't. Everybody up and down my street in my neighborhood were married. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You, you didn't, mm-hmm. you, you know, uh, if, a, if a girl was pregnant yeah. in high school, right? she had to go to school at night. Mm-hmm. She could not be in a classroom mm-hmm. amongst others. Right. Because there was a, a standard of ethics, mm-hmm. I guess. that. Uh, and then if you look at the religious kind of, you know, if you're in the Bible Belt area, you can imagine what that meant, too. But, uh, but then also now, I, there was other, I'm trying to cover, I'm not going to cover everything because you cover so many beautiful topics. But the main one that I can come uh, with this is that uh, dealing with the present economic status of today, uh, you know, uh, being able to deal with uh, child support, here you got what, 40 million people unemployed in this country right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the outcome? And then, what is the solution? And for me, as an engineer, I, I hadn't, I've always looked at it at, at first as my company was very successful and I was, on, I was only good to the next contract though. Okay, and so it's so other words, you, you got money, you make good money and you can go a whole year on that money. But then, you know, you, when you get down to it again, it's time for another contract. Right. So you you're 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 going it's Dave, it's almost mm-hmm. contract by it's contract by contract. And and so on the yeah. outside yeah. it, it yeah. looks productive, it looks successful, but you know that you're one contract away from a whole lot of problems. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and then you look at how the unions are set up. Right. Uh, that that uh in, in that union, do you know all you have to do what I'm saying is that every child White child is already born with a guaranteed job. If their parents were in the union, all they had to do is walk up and say, you know, my grandfather was part of the union. Oh, step on up here. Let me look at his record and stuff. Oh, we got a job for you. Oh, my dad is in the union. Oh, my uncle was in the union. Mm-hmm. You know, you know the, uh, the, that kind of thing is what's going on. Right. And, but, but now I begin to look at it differently. I mm-hmm. said, you know what? What we need now is infrastructure. Okay. We need to own the infrastructure of where we live. Mm-hmm. And so I started studying that whole concept of how to create new economic models to fit the time that we're in. Because now we have robotics and, and animation, automation, all of this type of thing, technology displacing the need for human labor. Now, that's and true. it's getting to the point now mm-hmm. that 30% of all the white collar jobs are, are already said in 2020 was going to be cut off because of auto, uh, artificial intelligence. Automation, artificial AI, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let me, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you one last thought and I'm going to have to move on, but I'm going to respond mm-hmm. to something you said off, off the air. So go ahead and give us your final thought. Okay. I, I, I came up with a lot, number of ideas about infrastructure that we need to own the infrastructure where we live. We need to own the streetlights. We need to own, uh, it's a whole list of things that I can look at, mm-hmm. but I see that the sustainable community is the key. A green sustainable community is the key to uh, becoming our anti-poverty program. We need okay. to dive and invest in, into okay. this new thing. Okay. Okay. I appreciate that. Thanks a lot, mm-hmm. brother. And thank you too, sir. All right. Um, God bless you. You as well. I think one of the things that's important, and let me let me shout out uh, WPR One. Appreciate that support, sir. Um, thank you. Um, also, Maxwell. Appreciate that. Yeah, Maxwell mentions um, uh, the endangered black family, page thirty-three sixty-two. Um, so, thank you for that. 
Um, but one of the things he said about what we need to own, you know, I, I think, again, predicated on the idea that we as black men most particularly learn to resource with one another, that's key. Uh, I think that would be important. But again, it comes back to black men working together in my assessment. Uh, and I think it's something that can be done, but it is something that we have not prioritized to the degree we need to. Now, there's only a couple of quick things that I want to say before we close out for tonight. Um, first of which has to do with, where did it go? Oh, one minute. It was just on my head and then it started to, damn it. Yeah, that's one of those things. My memory has been ridiculous lately. But one of the things I wanted to talk about was the way in which um, black males who are in any way successful uh, have often had to do. There's a film and I'm going to be reviewing it uh, uh, probably within the next 48 hours. Uh, it's a film that came out, I want to say in about 1989 and stars Gregory Hines. It's a film it's called Tap. Uh, I don't know how many of you may have seen it, um, but, you know, I'm not a tap dancer, but I could definitely appreciate it. It was for tap black tap dancers. It was what uh, Eddie Murphy's Harlem Nights was for black comedians. Right. Where you, you had Eddie Murphy, you had Richard Pryor, you had Red Fox, you know, multiple generations of epic black comedians. Tap was that for black tap dancers. Right. And in it, you had Gregory Hines and then you had a father figure and Sammy Davis Jr. And a whole score of black epic, you know, uh, tap dancers. Uh, and you even had Savion Glover in there as a young teenager. Really good film. And if you watch it again as a grown man, if you've seen it before, trust me, it strikes, it hits different. It hits different. What it is, though, is, you know, Gregory Hines plays an ex-con. He gets out of prison. Um, and the only thing that sustained him while he was there was tap dancing. He talks about actually being sent to prison and, and being sent to the hole for fighting a guard that was messing with him. And he was sent to the hole for three months. And the only thing that kept him from losing his mind is he started to hear these rhythms and he started to dance to them, right? And he started tapping. And he, by the time he gets out of prison, he comes back to you know where he grew up. And where he grew up is actually in a tap dancing studio where Sammy Davis Jr. and a number of other uh, tap dancing professionals all live. He comes out of that environment, right? And the woman that he's interested in their play, I think her name was Suzette Douglas or Suzanne Douglas, uh, beautiful chocolate sister. Um, you know, she's a tap dancing teacher as well, but she has a different relationship to capital. And what do I mean by that? Well, she works also, not only is she teaching this black owned tap dancing, you know, school, she also works um, on Broadway under white directors, right? And so what she tries to do at a certain point is she tries to get Gregory Hines' character, his name is Max. He tries to get Max to come in and work on Broadway with her. And she doesn't anticipate that Max is not going to be received the way she is. Right? It doesn't cross her mind. And Sammy Davis Jr.'s character, there's actually an epic discussion he has with her when he tries to explain that before anything has even gone wrong. Right? He, he he actually gets a job in a Broadway, you know, but but he's on a line tapping with 100 other people, you know, and, and it's nothing the way he can actually tap dance. Right. Nothing. But even though he gets in at a certain po point, his skills and talents are dismissed. Right. And she does not understand. See, I've run across this with a lot of different sisters over the years, a lot of different sisters where the idea to them was 
you you just you just don't know what to say. You, 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 there's something wrong with you that these channels don't work for you. And I'm saying this as someone with a doctorate. But understand something. The brothers I know that are doing well, most of them didn't come through any kind of official channels the way you think. Yeah, I did a doctorate, but I did it in a field that's not well known. My dissertation was not reflective of anything commonly dealt with. You know, the, my approach to it was fairly unique. And I had to go to a space where I hadn't had the room to be unique, Right. My job at Fresno State, yeah, I got a I got a teaching position and I got tenure, but there's nobody at Fresno State doing what I'm doing. You know, and, and, and so what I'm saying to you is even the brothers I know that have done well had to go through non-traditional channels to achieve it because the traditional channels didn't work. So going back to Max, eventually the tap dancing thing and Broadway doesn't work. And at a, a critical point in the film, he's considering going back into a life of crime. Now, what ends up kind of working for him by the end is that Sammy Davis Jr. has worked out this new way of tap dancing where they're able to, to tie a microphone into the taps in his shoes. So as opposed to performing on Broadway in front of thousands of people, he's in this little dance club studio slash club bar and he's tap dancing, but he's able to do it in this innovative way that no one else is doing. This is what I think successful brothers that I know have had to do. They've had to create their own spaces. The brothers I gravitate to here on YouTube, the brothers I associate with out in the world, they're, it's not like that's a prerequisite for being my friend. It's just something I notice. The brothers that are doing well had to create their own spaces because the traditional channels didn't work. They didn't work for us. We were not allowed. We didn't participate because, you know, the rules were changed. This goes back to what I said earlier about the black male dual economy. It's not always just about, you know, payment. It, it, the dual economy has to do with what you have to experience differently that costs more, even if it's an intangible. Right. If I walk into a job interview and the look on the person interviewing me's face is he's going to steal from me or, oh, God, not another one of them. That's a that's a, that has a cost. It has a cost on my spirit. It has a cost on my life possibilities, but that's not necessarily tangible, right? But it still speaks to a different quality of life. And this is partly what I mean when I talk about the black male dual economy. So what I'm saying to you, using this example from this film tap, and I recommend you go watch it. I saw it, you can find it for like $3.99, $2.99 on Amazon Prime. And I had to put it in my library, so I had to buy the DVD. I'm, I don't know why I didn't have it already, but it was a powerful film. And there was this moment where he's tapping on stage for this white director. And the woman he's with is just with her eyes, she's begging him to follow suit, to do everything he's expected to do. And he does. And it's not good enough, even though he's the most talented dancer in the freaking building. In the building the most talented dancer. As a matter of fact, Gregory Hines himself, you know, Gregory Hines himself, when it came to making of this film, which what's, what's real interesting to know is that they didn't list him as a choreographer. They listed him as an improvographer. To my knowledge, no such term exists. And the reason they did this is because what he was doing with the film is he wasn't choreographing it and telling people, you know, um, how do I put it? He wasn't, 
he wasn't doing the choreography in a traditional way. What he was doing is he was improving it on the spot. The entire film was him improving on the spot. They see they filmed scenes one scene at a time because they knew the dancing was going to be different the next time. And he just did it on the spot. This is how brilliant and intelligent brothers I know are in their respective lanes. But very few have been received in, in traditional channels. And the extent to which they have, it's still gone in a very unique way, in a way that you couldn't anticipate. Right. Um, and so I'm going to show you an example. This is how brilliant this brother is. I want you to it's just a few seconds, but I'm going to show you this scene. On, on him dancing. And I want you to remember the whole way through that he has improved this entire segment. Improved. Okay. And for those who are. Oh, hold on. No, we don't have time for that one. <laughs> that That's a different scene. That's the scene. That's the wrong scene. I'm sorry. Um, these are some of the scenes I pulled from the movie because it said, like I said, I did a review or I'm going to be releasing a review. Um, and so let me, let me bear with me. I think, uh -huh. okay. so this is the scene. All improv on the spot. Now, that was a very short scene, and it was it was not even the most profound dancing moment that you'll find. But it's still representative of the kind of brilliance that I noticed from black men, but the kind of brilliance that has never been received in established channels. And if nobody else is going to receive us, we damn sure got to receive ourselves. And that's what I want to get across to you. Those of you who are, are part of um, my uh, film review community, I will be, Michael, appreciate that support. Uh, I will be going over tap in far more detail because there's a lot of other elements to that, even getting into the very notion of um, improvisation and where that plays in black creative intelligence. I'm gonna be getting into all of that in the review, powerful film, but it's also representative of the experience of black men, his relationship with his woman, her relationship with the establishment, how far she's been able to get, the degree to which she doesn't understand why he's not able to do what she does, why he's not received, and her basic assumption that I've experienced personally is that there's something wrong with him and that if he just talked right, if he just did this right, he'd be received. But speaking as somebody who got the degrees, who got the jobs, I can tell you, that's not the thing that got me in there. That's not what kept me in there. And that's not what has made me contribute, able to contribute something that others don't. Because at the end of the day, the established channels still work against us, even when we're in those spaces. And so that, that inner creativity that you have, that others don't know how to receive, don't know how to interpret, and don't want to have around. That's the element of yourself you need to build on, embellish on. Anyway, so uh, y'all know how I like to close out. Um, let me go ahead and put this up. I want you to be able to, to see it. I don't know why. 
I'm sorry. This thing is is acting new, acting brand new, as they say. All right. So y'all know how I like to do. I'm here to tell you, brothers, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, brainless henchmen, valueless assassins, pro bono mercenaries, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, or any other socially acceptable, accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, innovators, inventors, leaders, fathers, warriors, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace.